shooting out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't mean maybe. Welcome to Nocturnal Journal on WGN. And uh, we're a little rusty, haven't been on for a couple weeks. We're going to talk uh, in the next hour about Project Onward and uh, some mashup rock and roll art from Los Angeles. And much of the first hour is going to be about mental health and the Chicago Police Department and the Chicago Fire Department. And joining us in studio, I'm glad you guys all, all came down, is Lieutenant Antoinette Ursitti. Thank you. Of the Chicago Police Department. And we have Alexa James, Executive Director of NAMI. And say what we'll get into NAMI, but say what NAMI is National Alliance on Mental Illness, Chicago Chapter. And our friend Frederick Nitsch, role player and Chicago artist. Hello. Thanks for coming down. So let's just start with what NAMI does and how you coordinated with and how you hooked up with the Chicago Police Department. Sure. So NAMI Chicago is an organization that supports all people who are impacted by mental health conditions and, and substance use disorders. And really, our effort is to decrease stigma and reform the mental health system, which is a pretty big task, considering we've never had a fully functional system. And one of the biggest um, actors in our system is, unfortunately, from a crisis perspective, right, but is the Chicago Police Department and all first responders. So we've had the privilege of working with the department for over 14 years um, on many things, but in particular, the crisis intervention team training. And what goes into that? So hopefully, Lieutenant will chime in on that too, but it's a 40-hour training. It's voluntary. It's for officers who want to gain a deeper perspective on how to support people who are experiencing their worst day of their life, a mental health crisis, and their families. And there's real skill set building that happens. So they have a very strong understanding at the end of the course about signs and symptoms of mental health issues, right? What may have looked criminal, now they have a better understanding it is behavioral and is related to this illness and this disease. They spend a lot of time role-playing with individuals like Frederick, who's we'll talk more about that later, and they learn the perspective of lived of people with lived experience, right, who touch the system. And also they review order, their general orders about how to support somebody in crisis, what rules to follow, how to utilize the department. But what's really unique about this program is it's a program. It's not just a training. It doesn't end at 40 hours. It expands well beyond and really becomes integral to our mental health system. Lieutenant. Yeah, talk about uh, how the what, what the role playing does. And actually, we were talking in the green room. I didn't know uh, this kind of came to Chicago in two thousand four. So talk a little about the history. That's kind of recent history still. I mean, you got the idea and talk about Memphis, the roots in Memphis, then coming to Chicago. Yes, the best practice model is known as uh, the Memphis model, and it originated in nineteen eighty eight after an incident that happened in nineteen eighty seven. Uh, my understanding of it is Memphis police officers were dispatched to a man um, ex experiencing suicidal thoughts and actions, was armed with a knife when the officers arrived. Uh, the situation escalated and that man was shot and killed. Um, one of the 
results that came out of that unfortunate uh, reaction in the community is that they all came together and formed uh, what could be described as a task force. Uh, at the heart of that program for the Memphis Police Department was the National Alliance on Men Mental Illness, just like the chapter here in Chicago is at the heart of our program. A lot of uh, mental health advocates and providers, uh, universities there came together and tried to determine how they could best educate police officers on the signs and symptoms to have increased awareness and uh, alternative responses to when uh, they do encounter someone in crisis. And it started in Chicago in 2004 then? That's, uh, yes, with uh, support out of uh, Springfield from the Illinois Law Enforcement Training and Standards Board. Uh, our program uh, got on its own feet in 2004. And when did you join the force? When did you join the police department? I joined the police department in 2000. So what was it like for you when you joined the, I mean, as far as this type of thing going on and, and mental health questions and issues of depression and, and stress and stuff, what was it like for you in 2000 and how things evolved over, over time? Well, I think one of the positive things is that there's been an obvious increase in uh, awareness of these types of events and how frequently they're happening. Um, myself, I received the 40-hour training in 2006. Again, I think it was advantageous that it was available so early in my career. Uh, and I think having that increased awareness gave me additional skills that aren't just limited to responding to a person in crisis, um, but you know that I was able to use in other areas of my career. And then again, I think that that's what's uh, happening as this program has become a best practice model, that it's it spread to at least 45 states, that there's more than 2,700 communities that are uh, supporting their officers with this model. What are some of the skills and some of the lessons you learned that you put into play and other officers put into play? Well, I always say that, again, it's not that we um, maybe don't necessarily have these skills, but to really practice with subject matter experts and uh, to dedicate this much time to it, but active listening. Again, communication skills really at the heart of it, really understanding how tone and inflection uh, can set the direction of an interaction. Um, really, I think one of the biggest uh, changes in understanding that come with this program and this model is really slowing things down. Obviously, it's a very fast-paced uh, career. There's a lot of uh, events that require a police response. And really, with this program, we're really focused on taking our time and slowing things down and really building that rapport with the person in crisis. And building rapport with community members is, again, I think what's at the heart of what we're trying to do as police officers here in Chicago. Boy, that's building uh, rapport with community community members that's that's yeah. tough right well and i think i think you know it's important to notice that we are asking a lot of our first responders right, right. that over time um deinvestment in communities especially in mental health and healthcare services have put a lot of the um, energy on first responders to be mental health experts right and so as lieutenant city said we're asking people to slow down we're asking them to take their time we're asking them to really utilize that critical thinking that like now i need to utilize a different skill set right in this interaction which is a, a pretty significant resource strain and so we just want to commend the department for stepping up in such a significant way and really over the past few years significantly investing in this program Frederick, what do you do as a, as a role player with the group? Uh, sure. So, so I, you know, I and my fellow role players come in on Thursdays. So that's after, you know, the majority of you know the four day hour training has has occurred, um, and we enact mental health crises. Um, you know, between myself and my other role players, we we cover you know the major diagnoses. Um, we're in a room and. Um, we we enact things 
largely that have that have come from our own lives from from reality um and you know we have sort of basic backstories for the scenarios that we ourselves have written um and officers come in in usually groups of three uh the entire encounter is videotaped um and the the officers are are then expected to assess the situation um you know de-escalate us you know with the intention of getting us to agree to go with them to the hospital um you know then on friday mornings um all of us all of the the officers who've been involved that week uh the sergeants involved lieutenant um a representative from nami and all the role players we we watch all the videos um and and we we debrief we we talk about what went well and what what you know could have gone better and and why we got to take a break but how many before we take the break how many people in the group how how big is the group um it's usually you know 5 to 5 to 7 people um each time we do it okay yeah okay we're going to um take a break for some spots and we're going to come back and we're going to talk more on uh, mental health and the Chicago Police Department and the Fire Department and 911 right mm-hmm. so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN <laughs> Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and we have Lieutenant Antoinette Yorsetti of the Chicago Police Department, Alexa James, the de- Executive Director of NAMI, and Frederick Nitsch, a role player with NAMI, right? Right. That's way. I'm glad you came down, Lieutenant. I mean, it's, I cannot, um, I've got like a couple friends who are, who are cops, and I talk to cops at the Matchbox, where I go to for drinks, and they talk about, talk about, have you ever been to the Matchbox? <laughs> <laughs> And so, I mean, I hear a lot about stress. So, I mean, just to cut to, I mean, how stressful is a job for uh, a Chicago police officer? And, uh, you know, then when you came on 2000 and everything we're reading about in the news now, I mean, I can't, I can't get my head around how, how you guys handle stress. Well, again, the nature of the work itself is we're emergency responders. So we are going to events on a regular basis where um, there's trauma that's happening. So uh, one of the things um, that we've increasingly been learning about in our department is vicarious trauma, compassion fatigue, how responding to those events over time can take a toll personally. And it's been very helpful, I think, um, to have that reinforced and to understand that more. I mean, I saw the mayor's comments this week about what he's not going to miss, you know, and um, you're not going to be not going to miss being around families you know would have to see their kids or no other parents show up the lack of support system and stuff it's the stress just has to be over the top do you want do you want to i mean I, yeah i think we're seeing a city i think we have a wonderful city i think there's so much opportunity here i think we're an escalated city i think we're kind of a sick city sometimes right we see high high levels of trauma we don't necessarily have the resources or protective factors in place to mitigate the trauma when we um go out with lieutenant or setting her team to roll calls and talk to officers about compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma I think it's this like awareness building that's important right we talk all the time about how they work hard to mitigate physical injury and physical risk because they have tools to do so and vests to wear but what we don't do enough uh, a good job uh, with them is equipping them with emotional mitigation right like this job is going to impact you they're superheroes but they still are impacted what are we doing you know in partnership with the department or as a community 
community to, to make sure that it doesn't make them sick and it doesn't make them so distressed that it interferes with their relationships. What is, can you elaborate on what compassion fatigue is? Sure. It's, yeah. you know, when you see trauma all the time every day and when you are tasked with managing that for other people, what we're asking you to use is a skill set with empathy, right? Which means I need to know how you feel right now. Maybe I've never been there, but it's a very vulnerable place to be if you're really doing it well. And it's the most productive way to get somebody um, to, to feel validated. But it's gutting if you don't replenish. And so we see that all the time. And if you don't have support around you, if you don't have a clear structure of expectations, you are very highly likely to develop compassion fatigue. Doctors, clinicians, nurses, you know, we see this a lot with emergency department doctors too. Um, this is very common. It doesn't mean you're sick or weak. It doesn't mean you can't handle the job. It just means we have to pay attention a little bit more. We were talking before we went on the air, uh, seven, it's in the news, seven officer suicides since July for everybody. How hard is it for, um, and anybody i mean not just you know just talk about their problems and to, and to say i need help um, how hard is that i think it's really hard yeah. i think it's really brave when people say i need help i think that a lot of people don't know they're actually even suffering what we ask people is be an ally look out for each other you know it's a silly example but if i were at a starbucks and i saw like a dad with a stroller struggling through the door i'd open the door for him i wouldn't think twice we don't do that when we see people that are hurting um and we just need to be better about it um with with every profession and with everybody in our community right right frederick what do you see in the role playing um yeah i mean if you know and just just to go back to the the, the simple idea of asking for help when we are really struggling. I mean, you know, I, I don't know if this was implied before, but you know, the, the role players with, with NAMI and CIT are all people who are living with mental illness, right? So, so I, I do have a severe mental illness. I've been in the hospital three times. And, you know, when I was severely struggling, um, you know, when I, when I had to drop out of graduate school in my early 20s, um, you know, the way that I, I did ask for help um, was from my family, and they helped me find a, you know, a sort of uh, wraparound clinic up in Rogers Park, Trilogy Behavioral Healthcare, and you know, Trilogy provides, uh, you know, group therapy, individual therapy, um, psychiatry, um, you know, phys uh, physicians as well. I mean, all 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 under one roof, and something that has become so clear to me in the last couple of years is that had I not had the support of my community, my family, and, and a social worker on my side making all of that access so easy to me, I would not have done well. I mean, I had all of that um, so easily accessible and I was still barely treading water for five years. So I, I, I feel that people are asking for help more and more um but we need to know how to respond and by res and our response can't just be oh you should go see a shrink i mean right. that is not enough of a response the, res the response needs needs to be you know very giving very very loving empathy is a key word yeah i mean empathy is yeah empathy is a key when you bring this up, do you bring this up in your in your role playing and stuff? And how do people respond if you bring it up? Your own personal journey. Um, yeah. So, so it doesn't come up in the role playing. So I'll explain a little bit more what happens during the week. So on the on Tuesdays, um, part of the forty hour training is hearing from a panel of uh, family members of people 
um, who've had folks in their family struggle with mental illness and a panel of folks who themselves have struggled with mental illness. Now, before I did the role plays, just to sort of get my feet wet, you know, experiencing what it's like to work with the police, I was on those individual panels. Uh, and in that context, I told my personal story. Um, because I do the role plays now, I no longer do the panels. Um, but the role plays that I do are based on personal experience. Um, so, you know, I, I have experienced hypomania and I have experienced suicidal depression and suicidal ideation. And so those are, those are the two uh, types of scenarios that I enact with the police. Is there a number uh, or website uh, listeners can find out more information or if they need help, where can they go to? Um, for the there's uh, yeah, uh, there's a bunch of resources. Okay. You know, we uh, at NAMI we say we're the clearinghouse, right? Where we cut through the red tape. So if people want to call us, they can call three one two five six three zero four four five. They can also access us through three one one services, and they can go to our website at namichicago.org. We would love to engage more people with lived experience in the CIT program. Um, it is one of the most popular parts of the forty hours, and so if more people are interested, there's opportunities to get involved through our website. How did you guys find each other? Um, yeah, uh, the, actually, I, I wanted to, to say even before you asked the question that um, another way, so the, the way that I first began, became involved with NAMI and another way for people with lived experience to become engaged with NAMI, which I think is fantastic, um, I first hooked up with them um, with their high school outreach program called Ending the Silence. Um, I had been working in a school uh, tutoring math um, and I, you know, was getting to know my students well, and they were sharing more and more personal stories. And I really, by the end of that year, I wanted to be talking to them about their lives, not math. Um, so when I left that job, um, I actually spoke with my social worker, uh, and she knew about NAMI and that they had this program. So what Ending the Silence is, is that folks with lived experience can go to various high schools around public high schools around Chicago and speak with a health or science class. There were one or two occasions it was like an assembly um, and just tell their life story um, for the sake of, you know, getting that conversation started sooner for young people, which I think is amazing. So th that's how I got started. And then my, you know, my boss from, from Any of the Silence found out that I, I do improv comedy and she thought, well, hey, maybe you should try the role play thing and and that's how that happened um we're gonna take a break for david jennings in the news here in a minute yeah i'm gonna ask you to stay for a little bit longer like maybe the quarter to ten i mean that's the thing is i mean you guys know now i'm kind of reluctant to do to do radio but something like this is really important to me to be able to bring this up and talk about this we did it with carl with with sip of hope and i think we're doing a service to some people who might be listening so uh, i don't want to run through this so you gotta hang around after the news yeah. Okay, definitely. we'll continue with this after uh, the news with David Jennings on WGN. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Ooh, child, things are gonna get easier. Ooh, child, things will get brighter. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and we're talking about mental health in the Chicago Police Department, the Chicago Fire Department. We're going to get into 911. I wanted to play uh, the five stair steps there because uh, the late uh, Clarence um, Sr., Burke, 
was a Chicago police detective, and he was the family leader of that band. Hmm. Learn something it's great, new. And it's such a great song. We're talking about community and understanding. Yeah. That's what that song is all about. David Jennings, did you have a question? Yeah. And bear with me. With the military, we have had for a very long time this inability to figure out that when people come back that you don't just pull the plug, that you don't just walk back into daily life. Do we have to now get more serious about the conversation that people who put on the uniform and a star, they, and and not just the public dealing with that, but also members of the department understanding that, you know what, we have to talk. And you don't have to be afraid to talk. Um, How do you get through to people to get them to be willing to talk? Did you hear that? Yes. Okay. Um, That's exactly right. We know that there's a lot of stigma surrounding mental health conditions, and it's it's a it's a really good time to ask that question. One of the reasons why we engage with um, brave souls with lived experience to share their stories is because research tells us that you can't demonize somebody you know, and that the the best way to reduce stigma is to hearing from other people's perspectives, which is why at NAMI Chicago and at other organizations, people's voice with lived experience should be really leading the ship and should be beginning the conversation. It's really when you see people shift, right? Because they see people like Frederick and they see, yeah, this was a lot, this is a lot of work, and but, but he's recovered, he's recovering, and he's engaging in the world, and he's okay, and I'm okay to ask for help too and it's a safe thing to do Um, we also teach people what it will look like sometimes when you come out about your mental illness right because not everybody gives you a warm reception Mm -hmm. and so what we ask people all the time at NAMI to do and in our community is hold on to hope find a safe support system find a community in which it is okay to talk about this and hopefully we will meet you where you are the issue of course is that there's a lot of mistrust in the mental health system and a lot of people have tried and engaged and it has not met them where they needed to be so we're just asking people try again help is out there people do recover but but it does uh, require work and engagement and and I, and I just want to say that you know I think with with so many conditions but especially something like like PTSD I think there is I think there is a lot of, of disbelief and and I you know that that is stigma I mean the the, the stigma that something is not real um, not only held by by other people, but sometimes by by us ourselves. And and something that I I, I can't sing the praises enough of is support groups and, and group therapy. Um, you know, I in these last three years that I've been doing well, uh, really been an open book with people, and that's led to a lot of great conversations. Um, but I, I can't tell you how many how many you know friends and and you know new acquaintances I've met who've been struggling with something, and they're like. But but I'm I'm in therapy, you know. I'm 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 trying, and and I'm like that's great. Therapy's great, but but just speaking with other people who have a similar experience, who simply by their presence and their acknowledgement will validate what's going on in your life, it is so so valuable. So so I you know I you know I I think for something like military like like first responders things like trauma you know support groups are vital yeah that peer-to-peer right especially in military and and, uh organizations like that it's really also important for for it to be normalized upon 
engaging in that organization from leadership that this is going to happen, that um, help is available, that you're not weak to ask for help, and that um, we need to make sure that there's people around you with the same type of experience that you can have some kinship with as you're going through this journey. If, if you were allowed to lay out a plan, what else would you add to it aside from getting that door open to people having a willingness to go into therapy what are the things would you want to bring in how much time do we have okay, I, I mean, if we're, that's I mean too much. well no i mean if we're talking about um first responders or military there's there's templates right that we're thinking about now that we're building that a lot of other people are it really starts with the culture it really starts with acceptance that this is okay and that leadership encourages this and that if you do ask for help there's no punitive action there's also there has to be understanding about trauma in the brain so people really understand that this changes the shape of our dna this changes the way that we see the world. Um, and creating an environment, a work environment that's healthy, where you're not living in constant chaos and stress all the time, right? So there's a lot that goes into it. This isn't just about, as Frederick said, this isn't just about finding a therapist. This is about creating a well community and a well organization. And it's a lot of work. What what happens? So someone says, I need help. Can you just talk about the steps they go through? Well, I, I just wanted to to maybe bridge between, you know, the, the last question and your question, um, you know, it, it, it's also, and this may be opening a, a, a huge, a huge can of worms, but, but it, it's also a question of, you know, our, b- before we can address somebody's trauma, we need to make sure that that person's physical needs are taken care of. We need to make sure they have proper housing and those things cannot be contingent upon their mental well-being and stability, you know, in in the first place. So the the housing, the physical needs, the financial needs need to be need to be stable and provided for, I think, in order for us to even tackle the mental health in the first place. And that's why when I was speaking earlier about the wraparound care that was so vital to me, it was because without all of those uh-huh. things being in place and being sort of taken care of and sort of uh, like uh <laughs> um you know, orchestrated by like one person, like a social worker, I I would I would have I would have just drowned, right? And, and and for us not to be, you know, keeping those things orchestrated for the people coming back from war, for for people, you know, first responders, is 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 just a gross failure. So I hear you saying part. it's kind of a holistic approach, right? Absol- yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, if if I'm worried, if I'm worried about, where, you know, how I'm going to pay for my home, if mm-hmm. I'm worried about my my physical health, am I am I going to worry about where where I'm getting my psych meds? Am I going to worry about going to group? You know, no. I, I mean, I'm not. Yeah. Yeah. How many police officers are there in the in the in the force? I, I have a number here of thirteen thousand. That's a good number. That's a good number because. Now this is I, I doing. I'm a novice to all this. I'm learning a lot tonight. Uh, this is a 2017 U.S. Uh, Department of Justice report found that CBT CBD's employee assistant program had three counselors providing services to more than 13,000 officers. Now, what is that accurate? They're or, growing. They're growing yeah. there. But that's amazing. 
But it's three? not unusual. Yeah, it's not really, unusual it's not. Other departments, no. It's really we've been exploring the country, looking at officer wellness programs, and um, it wasn't that they didn't want it. It's not that the head of the AP was like, "This is sufficient." Uh-huh. This just, you know, this is a change. Uh, this is a culture change, right? That that organizations have to be responsible for the physical and mental and, and mental wellness sure. of their of their employees. Wow. So it is growing. There's a lot of attention right now being paid to the growth of a wellness unit and the EAP within the department. Um, and it's exciting to, to, to see that. I'd also just like to speak yeah. that there's a lot beyond just uh, coming in to see a clinician. There's a lot they've uh. been building out. There's a speaker series that they are now holding the, the second event where they bring in someone to talk about these issues with officers. Uh, there's a peer support program. So there, there's a lot that exceeds just being able to go into counseling that our department is absolutely committed to, to doing. And actually, just, just in the last week or so, CPD released a video um, about... Uh, EAP and um, had a number of officers talking about their own struggles with with secondary trauma um, and talking about getting help, which I thought was amazing. And everybody, I think, should should take a look at it. Um, the Tribune actually had the article and a link to the video. So. Oh yeah, I saw that. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you've branched off. Talk about we've been teasing with this, uh, going with the Chicago Fire Department and nine one one nine one ones. Yeah. So talk about what you do there. Sure. Uh, Several years ago, we all came together as a group, um, all the first responder agencies, and we include uh, 911 OAMC in that as well, as uh, as well as many providers and advocates in the city, and thought, you know, we really all need to be speaking the same language and having the same narrative around this and understanding each other's policies. Uh, and the first step with that was, of course, training 911 call takers. So we're grateful to the leadership of OAMC that they invited us in to participate. So every single police dispatch or call taker and dispatcher is now trained in how to identify better mental health calls and we have seen a significant increase in how they are pre-identifying that call right so now an officer has much more information walking into a situation and then through the leadership of Lieutenant Ursetti and um, Dr. Markle who's one of the EMS regional court uh, directors and some other folks we've put together an interagency training where fire police CIT officers uh, medical based staff and OAMC uh, both fire and police dispatchers are training together with role plays with scenarios um, and it's really exciting. They, they love it. And they're really, for the first time, kind of having a dialogue with each other about what does it look like when we're both co-responding to somebody in crisis. We're going to take a break. I'm going to keep you till 10 o'clock. Is that right? If you have to go, go. But I'll keep you the other two. You know, I'd like to uh, do the rest of the hour on this. So, Okay. All right. Don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Well, the Rolling Stones wrote a song for me. It's a minor. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN and um, Alexa James from NAMI. Talk about the event you've got coming up at the end of the month. Light, of the, light, light the darkness. Light the darkness. We're super excited. It's our annual gala where we uh, raise money, but more importantly, celebrate individuals who have made significant um, impact in the mental health community. Lieutenant Ursitti was our CIT Officer of the Year last year. Um, and we, we really do. We just come together and celebrate. I mean, it, here's the thing. The narrative around mental illness is typically told in a very somber, 
um, hopeless way. And we want to spend the night changing that narrative and talking about hope and recovery and opportunity and real issues and real work that we have to do. So this year we're honoring um, Commissioner Julie Morita, who is uh, resign er, is resigning from the head of the Chicago Department of Public Health. She's been incredibly instrumental in talking about behavioral health. Chief Rainey from University of Chicago, OEMC, as we just mentioned. Chicago Survivors, they're a group that respond to all homicides in Chicago um, and support individuals who've experienced high rates of trauma, and Quinn Rollins, who now just transitioned to J.B. Pritzker's team, but does a lot with justice reform. This is Thursday, April 25th? It is. It's at the Garrity in uh, Pilsen. 2520 South Hoyne. Yes, we still have a few tickets available, but we are almost totally sold out. And how can people uh, learn more about this? If you go to our website at namichicago.org, um, all the details are there. Lieutenant. I have your title as a, as commanding officer of the crisis intervention team and crisis intervention unit. Yes, like Alexa so, mentioned when yeah. she was discussing, the training is at the heart of a CIT program, but it exceeds, again, just uh, training officers because we really need to coordinate and collaborate with the systems that are involved, like receiving facilities for us here. That looks like hospitals a lot of times where we bring someone when they're in crisis. There's new triage centers that are uh, in the city on the west side and on the south side. And uh, again, we also are looking at building out our team so that we can better understand the data and the trends that are happening and work on uh, enhancing a strategy uh, that ultimately appropriately responds to people in crisis beyond when they're just calling 911 or if someone's calling 911 because it looks like someone's in an emergency. And when was the crisis intervention team, when was that formed? Well, our training in the program uh, started again in 2004. 2004? Yes. And how did, you, how did you find that or how did they find you? How did you get that role? Uh, good luck. Uh, you know, again, honestly, though, um, I've had an inclination towards this kind of work. In 2007, I became licensed as a professional counselor in the state of Illinois. Uh, again, I took the training myself in 2006 and found it uh, extraordinarily invaluable for my career and the kind of work I was doing. And when the opportunity came along, uh, again, I had uh, just been promoted a little bit uh, before this opportunity arose. And uh, with my background and my uh, passion for it, I'm very pleased that there is the opportunity to do this work. For everybody, um, are there common, and maybe there isn't, I don't know, are there common questions, are there common issues, or is it just as complicated as the world? I mean, what are some of the, what are some of the uh, issues you hear? During the training week? Yeah. Uh -huh. Well, I think the advantage uh, is that we have a lot of veteran officers that are coming in, so they've got a lot of experience that they can match to what they're learning uh, throughout the instruction. We have a lot of subject matter experts, so sometimes they just want to understand things a little bit more. I do think that the highlight of the week is the family and persons with lived experience panel on Tuesday, where officers really do get a chance to ask questions about how... Uh, what worked and what would have been uh, different that could have worked for a person who was uh, in crisis when police responded. So, I, 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 Frederick, did you want to share anything yeah. about when you were on the panel? Um, yeah, no, I, th I think I think that's that's right about about what people ask about the panels. Um, you know, I think one thing that happens with the role plays. Um, you know, I think I think one of the most common common things that happens in the role plays. Um, you know, is that. Is that you know the 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 impulse when when officers come in the room and and I think this is what a large part of the training is to to sort of not correct this impulse but change the impulse. The impulse is you come in the room, you see somebody who's 
who, who's, who's having either the worst day of their life, the most confusing day of their life, depending on the diagnosis. And the impulse is to see that and to say, okay, we need to take you to the hospital, right? And, and that is the end goal. Um, but if you just walk in the room and say, look, we need to take you to the hospital, you're, you're missing a couple of things. First of all, from a legal perspective, you, you won't by that point have actually gotten enough information to write an involuntary hospitalization petition. But more importantly, I think, you know, as Alexa was speaking to before, you, you want to build that rapport, right? You, you want to assess and, and, and say, you know, what what's happened today to get you to this place? You know, have you been sleeping? Have you been eating? What what have the last couple of days of your life been like? And not only is that going to, you know, garner the information you need to give to hospital intake when you get there, um, but it's also going to, you know, make the person feel like a person again because they're feeling really out of control. So I, I, I think what happens really beautifully, you know, by the end of, of, the, of the CIT training is this weaving together of, yes, the legal Yes, the psychiatric information that these officers gain from that, but but also it does weave together with simply humanizing the person who's going through a crisis. Um, yeah, I think that the I think that what we hear is that officers are confused, mm -hmm. right? Like why I think that they're eager to be there and eager to be helpful and eager to keep people safe. I think they're like, why are we here? Like, why is this our problem, right? Why have why has the system failed this community so deeply that people are getting so sick to the point that they need our intervention? This is we have to remember that we should not get comfortable with this conversation. That there is no other medical chronic medical condition where we utilize um, the police and taking people against their will in many instances to mandate treatment right that we have such a we have such a broken system that people get to the point where they need um, a crisis or a police right response so i think a lot of their questions are really interesting about the system how did we get here is this about you know this closing or this budget impasse um why don't people take their meds uh -huh. you know why do i continue to see the same person over and over again and it's great because i mean it's not it's not a good story but that's when we can dive into a conversation with the officers about the system about housing instability we say how many people who you see over and over again that you continue to take to the emergency department have unstable housing and they all raise their hands right so uh -huh. we start to frame for them that housing is health care that mental health care uh -huh. should be primary health care and this is an, a real big opportunity for all of us to have a different conversation and when they get there then they're even more eager to participate in this system change and for them it's it's showing up on the worst day of someone's life and doing the best work they can do you know what's fascinating for for me on this this is all new this is all uh, a, an hour of discovery for me i mean it is all it is all new in what you guys do i mean do you look at you mentioned memphis are there other cities you look at it are doing models like this talk, talk about that a lot of people do CIT, the 40 hours, which yeah. is, you know, there's fidelity. A lot of people have decided to do different types of training programs where they start, for example, in the recruit with recruits in the academy, and they continue to um, I I uh, engage with the officers throughout their professional development, as opposed to just like one block of 40 hours. We're adjusting to that, too, under Lieutenant Studies leadership and the leadership of the training academy and the Bureau of Patrol, where now we're going to have... 
um, refresher trainings and advanced trainings again and things like that. Um, but every department, I mean, you know, it, it, this is not cookie cutter. We have to look at the city. We have to look yeah. at the budget. We have to look at what the community needs and the level of engagement of support and the providers. And really, at the end of the day, this is about making sure that officers have this as a skill set because, unfortunately, the reality of their work now is that they're very frequently the mental health safety net. It's 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 tough in Chicago right now. Well, and I also yeah. just want to say that it exceeds the 40-hour training. Uh, our recruits get modules on um, mental health, health awareness. Um, the department has uh, an excellent cadre of officers that are instructing in service uh, to, over the course of two days where they teach about mental health signs and symptoms and how to respond. So as Alexa mentioned at the beginning, this is considered a, a program for officers who uh, want to sign up for this, want to um, become knowledgeable in this specialized area. Um, but outside of that, the department is very dedicated to making sure that it's from the recruit uh, through other areas of in-service training. We talked about nine, we only got a couple minutes left. We talked about 911, um, talk about branching off into the fire department. That's So right now we're just doing the interagency training, so the training with all of them. However, in I think next month we are going to start training um, fire dispatchers, which will be great. So there will be some standardization between what the police are receiving and understanding and what the fire department is too. So they're really all hands on deck in trying to figure out how to best support the community through 911. But also, how are we supporting the 911 call takers, right? I mean, they also have a really incredible gig where they're hearing screaming that are haunting and um, getting on right to the next call too so we have to keep them in mind when we're talking about wellness share the information again websites phone numbers where people can call uh, res resource information is this when I give lieutenant or city's personal cell phone out <laughs> <laughs> or um, the, the NAMI um, helpline is 312-563-0445 or 833-NAMI-SHY and our website is namichicago.org and talk about your event again one more time it's April 25th um, at the Garrity it's called Light the Darkness come and join us in celebration of mental wellness did I miss anything in an hour? That was I'm, very thorough. <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Uh, thanks uh, so much, you guys, uh, for coming in. It's it's just fascinating, fascinating what you're doing. It's so important what you're doing. You know, how did you get involved in this? By accident. Yeah. I've yeah. asked everybody else. I know the back backstories the other two. Real quick, interesting yeah. story, but I won't share it uh, publicly. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm here, and I'm a social worker, and I landed at NAMI, and uh, fortunately for me, I fell in love with the organization and never want to leave. Okay, so thank you, uh, Lieutenant Antoinette Ursetti of the Chicago Police Department, Frederick Nietzsche, role player, and Alexa James, Executive Director of NAMI, and we'll be back after uh, David Jennings the news with Project Onward on WGN.